Sketch 12 of Zora Boys at Home and Abroad, or How to Succeed. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Raven Notation Zora Boys at Home and Abroad, or How to Succeed, by William Alexander Mackay. Sketch 12. Mervyn Cody. In the eighty-fifth year of his age. Among the very few early pioneers of Zora still living is Mervyn Cody, the subject of the present sketch. In his eighty-fifth year he is hale and hearty, enjoying the perfect use of all his faculties. He writes in a strong, bold hand, and expresses his thoughts in a clear, orderly manner, and with almost classical correctness. To no person does the writer owe so much for information regarding the earlier settlers, their trials and triumphs, as to Mervyn Cody, concerning whose Christian character it may safely be asserted that no man stands higher in the esteem of the people of Zora today. He was born in New York State in the year 1815. When four years of age he came with his parents to West Oxford, and at the age of nine, that is, in March 1824, he accompanied them to West Zora, and settled on what is now well known as the Cody Homestead. Four years after this his father died, the care of the family and farm thus devolving largely on Mervyn, only twelve years of age. His mother's maiden name was Fela Staples. She was a devoted Christian woman, and bravely bore the burdens of the pioneer widow. She died in 1878, in the 84th year of her age. The trials of those early times were neither few nor of a trifling character. There were no matches, and Mr. Cody writes, One night the fire went out, and, as we had no flint or spunk to strike a spark, I had to go nearly a mile, in a drizzling rain, through the woods to the nearest neighbour for fire, returning with a few coals between two pieces of stiff bark. Shoes were exceedingly scarce among the first pioneers. I well remember, says Mr. Cody, how, in the early twenties, many of the men, and also women, had to go barefoot during the summer. The children nearly all did. Of himself, he says, my father couldn't get shoes for all of us children, sometimes till the winter would be half over, and we never thought of wearing shoes in warm weather. The lack of shoes, however, didn't bother us very much. Often we boys would run out and chase each other in the snow, just for the fun of it. One day a neighbour's pigs, about half a mile away, came along, and, barefooted as I was, I started after them. They ran home, and I chased them every step of the way. The snow was about a foot deep, and the day was cold, but I enjoyed the fun of chasing the pigs. I went into Mr. Dorman's to warm my feet, and Mrs. Dorman, a kind motherly woman, hunted up a pair of socks and insisted on my wearing them home. Late one fall, 
a neighbour, Mr. William Land, went to mill barefoot, with oxen and sled, through the woods to where Ingersoll now stands, a distance of about six miles from home. He had to stay all night for his grist to be ready. In the morning there were several inches of snow on the ground. In this predicament, what was a poor man to do? Help came. Charles Ingersoll, Esquire, met the barefooted man, and in the kindness of his heart gave him a pair of shoes, and enabled him to return home in comfort. This custom of going barefoot, originating perhaps in necessity, continued long after the necessity passed away. As recently as the sixties, the writer remembers seeing women going to church, carrying their shoes on the arm, till within a few hundred yards of the place of worship. One dear old lady, while thus saving her shoes, stubbed her great toe against a stone so that it bled profusely, but the only complaint uttered was, Oh, what a blessing that I had in my new shoes on! Pioneer Fishing A kind providence, as if to compensate for the lack of other things to the early settlers, furnished them plentifully with fish. Before any dam was built across the Thames, fish, suckers and mullets, came up in the early spring in great numbers from Lake St. Clair, in all the branches of that river. During this time they afforded the settlers quite a supply of excellent food. The time of fishing was largely at night with a spear. The plan was somewhat unique. First, a torch was made of dry, cedar, split, fine. A large handful of these splints, two or more feet long, bound together and set on fire, furnished a good supply of light. One carrying the torch would enter the water and wade upstream. The light would attract the fish. The men with spears would follow, and many suckers would be caught. Then all would go back to the fire on the bank of the stream and have a good social chat. Thus they waited a while till more fish would come up, and then repeat the game as before, time and again till after midnight. In deep water the net was the best method of fishing. Fishing of this kind lasted in Zora till about the year 1840. Catching a Wolf There were many wolves in those days. Their howling was very terrifying, and farmers not infrequently suffered the loss of sheep, calves, and even cows through them. In order to encourage their extermination, the government allowed six dollars for each scalp. I have before me, as I write, a pouch used in the twenties by Captain William Mackay for carrying wolf scalps. Captain Mackay was the tax collector, and some of the farmers would pay their taxes with one or more scalps. This pouch was used by him for carrying the scalps from the farmer to the proper government official. It is a rusty-looking relic of ye olden time, made like a modern school bag and about the same size. The material is calfskin, tanned and dyed, lined with buckskin, and all waterproof. Catching a wolf was a great sensation. My father, writes Mr. Cody, kept a steel trap set for the purpose of catching wolves. This time it was just inside of a backfield, Going down one morning, I found the trap gone, and hastened back to report. 
my father was away from home, but two neighbours volunteered to help secure the wolf. It was going to be rare sport, and soon all the boys in the neighbourhood were assembled to see the fun. The wolf hadn't gone far. The trap had got a good hold of one of his forefeet, and the heavy clog which was attached to the trap soon hitched him fast so that he was quite secure. We, of course, wished to take him alive. For this purpose we secured a sapling with two branches at the top, which we trimmed and then twisted together in the form of a loop. Having the length of the sapling for a handle, we put the loop over the wolf's head and around its neck, partially choking the savage beast. With some prepared basewood bark, we bound its jaws securely together, and also fastened its four feet. Then we took a pole, and putting it between the wolf's feet and its body, shouldered it, and carried the animal home, trap and all. It was a very large wolf, standing about two and a half feet high. In a few years the wolves seemed to have all disappeared. In 1844, Mervyn Cody was married to Miss Mary Jane Vinning, who, for thirty-four years in a Christian manner, shared with him the joys and sorrows of pioneer life in Zora. Eleven children were born unto them, all of whom grew into manhood or womanhood, and eight of whom are still living. Mr. Cody's religious experience has ever been clear, decided, evangelical. The gospel is to him no abstract theory, but the bread of life upon which his soul feeds every day and hour, making him happy as the bird that sings in the treetop. I will give his testimony, in his own words, and not one of his old neighbours or acquaintances, but will heartily endorse it. He says, When in my seventeenth year, under a deep sense of my lost condition as a sinner, I went out one evening into the fields by the fence-side, and cried for mercy, and mercy was given me. There and then I became a new creature, the peace, the joy, the love which followed made me very happy. Twice, however, after my conversion, I was in Doubting Castle, as one of giant despair's prisoners. It happened in this way. Soon after my conversion, I felt it my duty to confess Christ publicly, and I did. Almost immediately, Satan began to taunt me, suggesting, What a fool you have made of yourself! You profess to be converted, when you haven't been. For some days I was in great distress till I renewed my consecration, and then it pleased the Lord to give me precious evidence of His love and salvation, restoring to me peace and joy. Some weeks after my conversion, I was guilty of willfully neglecting what I knew to be my duty, and my religious life at once began to decline. For about six or seven months I was in a backslidden condition, and deservedly very unhappy. One day, while following the plough, a sense of my wretched condition deeply impressed me. I stopped the oxen, fell on my knees behind the plough, and earnestly pled for mercy, and to be restored again to God's favour. Mercy was shown, pardon was granted, 
and again I could rejoice in my Saviour's love. My disobedience, which had been the cause of all my troubles, was distinctly before my mind. The neglected duty was no longer neglected, and on its discharge all my doubts were gone, and the enemy fled in confusion. Peace and joy returned to my troubled soul. Whatever may have been my unfaithfulness in my Christian life since then, from that day to this I have never doubted my conversion, or my being one of God's children. In my eighty-fifth year, and in near prospect of the great solemnities of eternity, I can testify that not any good thing hath failed me of all that the Lord hath spoken. End of Sketch 12